How are you guys doing today? Awesome. That's an awkward way to introduce myself, but hey, let's do this. Uh, my name is uh, Christian Moscoso, for those of you that don't know me, and I get the privilege this morning to preach the Word. Um, if you're here for the first time, usually before the sermon, uh, someone reads the passage. Today we have a very lengthy passage, and so we've decided that I'll just read it as we go. Uh, and so, just wanted to let you guys know in case you noticed the difference. Uh, before we jump into the text, would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your revealed word. Thank you, Father, that you decided to speak to us through uh, your word. We are so thankful, Father, that we get to hear from you and, uh, and build our life upon what you have revealed. And so, Father, we pray this morning that as we look at 1 Samuel 13, that it would be you, Lord, that speaks through me. Lord, I do pray uh, that uh, if there's anything that I say, Father, that uh, is not true, not intentionally, Father, but if there's anything that I say that does not go according to your word, I pray, Father, that it would fall to the ground and be forgotten. I pray, Father, for this church, that we would be a church that loves your word, that knows your word, that is familiar with it, Father, that we uh, would have discernment when we hear your word preached from a pulpit. And so, Father, we pray, uh, speak to us this morning, Holy Spirit, move in our hearts and help us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, that we would not deceive ourselves. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 So um, at home, as I believe is the case in many of your homes, uh, one of the ways that we use to train our children in the knowledge of God is by memorizing uh, the New City Catechism. If you're not familiar with it, it's a little booklet. It's a little book with 52 questions that just train your children to know God. Uh, I love it. Uh, my children love it. There's an app with songs that is so helpful sometimes, you know, for you to memorize these truths. But anyways, I didn't have that growing up, and so I do want my kids to, to, to be catechized, to, to remember what the Word of God teaches us. Now, the very first question in uh, the New City Catechism is actually borrowed from the Heidelberg Catechism, and you may be familiar with it. If you were to ask my kids, what is our only hope in life and death, my kids would quickly tell you that I am not my own, but I belong to God. I truly love this question. And that's why I try to drill it into my kids' hearts and minds to the point that it's annoying to them. You see, the reason I love this question is because it is counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive in that as fallen human beings, we are naturally bent inwardly. Our default is to think we are autonomous people and in need of no one. We think we are our own and that we belong to ourselves. This is what Alan Noble calls the lie of self-belonging. We think we belong to ourselves. Now this truth is also, or the truth that we belong to God, is also countercultural because everything in our culture reinforces this idea that we belong to ourselves, doesn't it? Everything from, uh, from the seemingly innocent Disney princes like Ariel or Moana or Elsa who will have us singing along with them as they proclaim in their catchy songs that we, can find our, that we can only find our true selves, that we can only find true happiness by breaking free of what others expect of us and find real happiness in doing our own thing, being ourselves, being our own. From that to the self-help videos and TikTok uh, that you know, are raising, unfortunately, a generation to think that they are the center of the world to the most 
obviously selfish cry of our generation of my body, my choice. Everything in our culture reinforces that we are our own and that we belong to ourselves. And if we belong to ourselves, it is up to us then to craft a meaningful life, a life that actually matters, isn't it? Now, Psalm 14 and verse 1 tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And we usually, when we hear this, we think that this applies to atheists. We think this applies to the agnostics, which is true. But I think this also applies to those who know there is a God, who believe there is a God, but refuse to submit to Him and pretend that they own their own lives. The temptation, or this temptation, of usurping God's throne is not new. It is a temptation of every human heart since the moment Eve questioned God's goodness in Genesis 3. I believe today's passage perfectly illustrates what I will refer to as the foolishness of self-belonging. We will see how Saul's actions and Saul's decision that he could take the place of God and build his own kingdom um, blew in his face. Blew up in his face and led to God actually rejecting him. Now, before we jump into the passage, I want to give you a little bit of a, uh, a, a cat. I want to catch you up for you to know exactly where it is that we are. In chapter 8, you, mem- you may remember the people of Israel rejected God by asking that he would give them a king. One that would make them look like all the other nations. Then in chapter King, in chapter King, chapter 10, I'm so sorry, God appointed Saul as king who in a very awkward ceremony was then anointed by king, uh, was then, <laughs> what is wrong with me? Was then anointed king by Samuel. Now from that ceremony, there are two specific instructions that you may have forgotten about that I forgot about <laughs> until this chapter. But they're very relevant to today's passage. One of them is uh, that Samuel instructs Saul to go to Gibeah where there is a garrison of Philistines. There's a group of Philistines that are a threat to the peace of Israel and Saul as king, should take care of them. The second instruction that Samuel gives him that is relevant to this passage is that he tells him, after you take care of the garrison of the Philistines, I want you to go to Gilgal once that you have done this, and for seven days wait for me that I may come and present a sacrifice. He was going to offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, these are two clear instructions that will make sense in a minute. But long story short... That happens, Samuel gives an instruction, a year goes by, and and Saul hasn't done either of these things. How about we read our text? Today we're going to read chapter 13, and we're going to start by reading um, the first two verses. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. Most likely, even if you're holding an ESV on your lap, you will have a different text than what I'm saying. and you'll, you'll, You'll get that in a second, and I'll explain. The physical ESV says this, Saul was dot 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 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned dot 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 and two years over Israel. Clearer, right? Let me read you another version, which is the ESV online. Okay, this is the digital version of the ESV. Same translators, just this version is a little different. Read it with me. It's on the screen. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel... And we'll stop there. 
you may have a different version that says that, reign, that, that Saul was 30 years old and he, was, and he then reigned over Israel for 40 years. I'll explain that in a second. But let me read again verses 1 and 2 now with all this cleared up. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now, the reason the first verse is so confusing is because in its original language, this opening sentence is a bit wonky. So translators have translated a bit differently in different translations. The one I first read would be the direct translation that you have in your physical ESV. So translators have interpreted this and they have explained it you know, using other information we're given in Scripture and they have uh, translated it this way. Basically, what this uh, first verse means is that after a year of the coronation ceremony, Saul's kingdom, I mean, this, this story happens. And only after two years of Saul being king, God stops recognizing him as king. Heartbreaking. We know from the book of Acts that he was king for over 40 years. But because of what we will see today, we see that God only recognized two years of his kingdom. Heartbreaking. Now, verse 2 describes how Saul chose 3,000 men to serve in his army. This is significant. And the reason it's significant is because, as you may remember in chapter 8, when they are asking uh, for a king, when they're begging Samuel for a king, Samuel warns them, that, the people, that if the people of Israel ask for a king, this king would take from them. It would cost them something. He said very specifically that this king would take from their sons and appoint some to his chariots and appoint some to make them commanders. He then says that, he would take their da- that the king would take their daughters and make them you know, serve him. Here we see how the people of Israel start seeing the consequences of the foolishness of self-belonging. You see, you cannot make yourself king and it not be costly. The foolishness of self-belonging is that it always comes at a cost. So let me ask you this morning. If you are building your own little kingdom apart from God, living for yourself, what is it costing you? Because most likely you have not considered this yet. But let's keep reading. And here in verses 3 and 4, I want you to see that the foolishness of self-belonging seeks to steal glory. Verses 3 and 4 say this. Jonathan, pay attention to that. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Giba. And the Philistines heard of it. And so blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now we see in verse 3 that Jonathan, Saul's son, defeated the garrison of the Philistine. Now, there's a debate whether Jonathan did this on his own accord, out of his own, uh, you know, he decided to do it. He decided to do what his father was instructed to do, or if maybe Saul, Saul instructed him to go and take care of it. Either way, the Bible tells us clearly that it was Jonathan that defeated the Philistines. Saul wasn't even in the same town. And yet, Saul blew the trumpet, the Bible tells us, and all of Israel said that Saul had defeated the Philistines. You see, one of the dangers of self-belonging is that it takes way too much credit. 
in a way, self-belonging seeks to steal glory. Because in this passage, not only did Saul steal Jonathan glory by telling everyone that he defeated the Philistines, but he is also stealing God's glory. And why do I say this? Because do you remember when he defeated the Ammonites in chapter 11, what did Saul say? He said this in verse 13 of chapter 11. He said, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Do you see the difference going from today the Lord has, has um, worked salvation in Israel to Saul has delivered us from the Philistines. Saul is stealing glory. And you know what he's doing? He's recruiting people for a battle. But as he's doing this, he, the Bible tells us that he gets 3,000 people. And our boy Saul is taking himself far too seriously. His words reflect what he seems to believe in his heart. He thinks he doesn't need God. He's building his own little kingdom, his own little army, to protect himself. He thinks he can be his own deliverer and the king his people need. But soon enough, he'll find out time and again that on his own, he will always fall short. Let us keep reading. Verses 5 through 7. And here I want you to see the foolishness of self-belonging never delivers. Verse 5 says this, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and camped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in, in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him, trembling. So after Saul tells the people of Israel that he defeated the Philistines, the Philistines start gathering their own army to get back at Israel. And the Philistines, remember how Saul had 3,000 people? A huge army of 3,000 people? The Philistines had gathered 36,000 people of their own. So when the men of Israel do the math, they quickly realize they're in big trouble. So what do they do? They bail in Saul. And they start hiding in caves and in holes and in tombs and in wells. You see, the foolishness of self-belonging is that it makes you believe that you don't need God. This doesn't always look like atheism or agnosticism. Sure, when you think you belong to yourself, you may at times say you believe in God. But more often than not, this God you think you believe in, if it's just a God out there and not the God of the Bible, and if this God also happens to agree with you in, on everything, this God, a God made to your own image and likeness, really means that you have made yourself God over your own life, which is all well and good until life slaps you across the face. You see, when you rely on yourself, you will quickly find out that you are not enough. Life has a way of reminding us that we are not God and that we cannot deliver ourselves. You see, when tragedy strikes, when suffering comes our way, as inevitably it will happen, if it hasn't yet happened, you better hope there's someone greater than you or than a God made of your own, a God of your own making. You better hope there is something greater than you that you can rely on. Otherwise, there is no hope for salvation. A God of your own making is way too small to be able to deliver you. One of my earliest memories is from when I was four or five years old. 
we were visiting my dad's uncle who had a pool. And at the time, I didn't know how to swim. And uh, as you can imagine, as a very confident four-year-old, five-year-old, uh, this didn't stop me from hanging out around the pool. Unsurprisingly, I somehow found myself at the bottom of the pool looking up. I remember being at the bottom of the pool looking up, and I can still, it's burned in my memory, I still remember this image of me looking up, hoping someone would see me. At that moment, my dad heroically jumps into the pool, snatches me out, and saved me. But you see, there are moments in life that help us realize the foolishness of self-belonging. Moments when we realize that on our own, we will always fall short. On our own, we are too little to save ourselves. We are limited and finite. But you know what? Unlike what, what, what society tells you, this is a blessing. Recognizing that you're limited, recognizing that you're small, recognizing your limitations is a blessing because it teaches you to rely on, on, on the only one that can actually be trusted, our good God. As children of God, it is a good thing to embrace our limits. They are a blessing. There will be moments in life when we will find ourselves at the bottom of the pool. And our only hope is found by looking up and knowing there is someone greater than us watching over us. Now, you may be going today through a trial. And this trial has reminded you of how limited you truly are. It may be illness. It may be another kind of suffering. It may be sin that was done against you. You may be in a situation where you're realizing how limited you truly are. If this is you, you can respond to this situation in a couple ways. You can shake your fist at God in anger, or you can lift your eyes to your God. You can embrace your limits and delight in the fact that it is in your weakness that His power is made perfect. Let's keep reading. This is going to be a little longer, so I'm warning you. <laughs> but here, we're going to read verses 8 through 15 through the first half of 15. And here I want you to see that the foolishness of, the foolishness of self-belonging exchanges obedience for convenience. Let's read verse 8. It says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and, have not, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Poor guy. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which you, he commanded you. For when the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, sorry, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose, and he went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Now, I'm aware this is a bit of a lengthy passage, but I hope what happened here didn't escape you. 
What we just saw is a turning point, not only in the life of Saul, but in the history of Israel. After making the call for men to join him in battle, Saul waits for seven days for Samuel to come as he instructed him in Samuel 10. In 1 Samuel 10. During that time, he keeps losing men who are rightfully intimidated by the size of the Philistine army. They are losing morale and they keep leaving. Now Saul, at this point, is desperate. And when, Saul, and when Samuel is late, he decides to take matters into his own hands. How dangerous it is to choose convenience over obedience, isn't it? You see, one of the dangers of the foolishness of self-belonging is that it turns worship into a means to an end. If you think you belong to yourself, worship and religion become nothing but a tool. A tool that you use to build your own kingdom. And what a dangerous thing that is. Saul is worried that he didn't, not that he didn't submit to God, but that he didn't look for his favor. God was a tool. At this point, it would be easy to shake your, our heads at Saul's failure to obey. Isn't it? That's the temptation to be like, well, look at this fool. But the reality is, I think that there are a couple of ways we can relate to Saul's temptation right here. First of all, sometimes obeying God is hard. God will call us to do things that are not easy. Sometimes obeying God is costly. In a society that is increasingly hostile to our faith, being faithful will sometimes cost you financially. It may cost you a friendship. It may cost you a job. It may cost you influence. Obeying God is not always easy, but it is always so worth it. You see, obedience is laced with blessing. There is blessing in obedience. Obeying God is never a mistake. Second way in which we can relate to, to Saul here is that it is often tempting to almost obey God, isn't it? How often are you tempted to almost obey Him? There are times when we are willing to go pretty far in obedience, only to give up near the end. Well, let me tell you this morning, almost obedience is always disobedience. The third way we can relate to Him is that it is often tempting to choose convenience, convenience over obedience. I wish I could tell you that I had never done this, but that would be a lie. That would be false. I have often chosen convenience over obedience. And I may not know you well, but I bet you have too. Now this leads us to the question, if we are like Saul, tempted so often to, be, to act this way, what was so wrong about what Saul did? You know, a superficial reading of this story might look like God blew things out of proportion, right? As if God is being too heavy-handed with poor little Saul. He just offered worship. But you know what John Wesley tells us? Um, like many of us do in our Bibles, John Wesley actually used to write little notes in his Bible. Next to this passage, he wrote the question, is there such a thing as little sin? Do you know what his answer was? He wrote, only if there is such a thing as a little God church sin is a big deal for us to fully understand the seriousness of Saul's sin there are a couple of things that i want to point out number one sometimes small sins are indicators of big heart problems Saul's small sin was an indicator that his heart was far from god as we will see in a minute Saul's seemingly innocent action was evidence of Saul's actual unbelief 
even if it was disguised in religiosity. Another thing I want to point out is that soul's disobedience revealed his self-sufficiency or that he thought he was self-sufficient. Another reason why Saul's sin was a big deal was that he usurped the place of the priest. He has already usurped the place of Jonathan. He usurped the place of God. The place of God. Now he's usurping the place of the priest. You see, burnt offerings were offered for the atonement of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. Saul wasn't qualified to offer the sacrifice. But he did it anyways because he was convenient. By doing this, he shows that he thinks he can atone for his own sins. This again is part of the foolishness of self-belonging. In our flesh, when we think we belong to ourselves, we are tempted to think that we don't need anyone else to pay for our sins. We like to think we are good enough, so we don't really need Jesus to pay for our sins. Another way this plays out is that we sometimes like to point at our good works, thinking they're enough to atone for our sins. This is silly. This is as silly as a murderer slipping a judge at 20 during the trial, thinking he can buy his forgiveness. You see, even if the judge was crooked and willing to negotiate, if all you have is 20 bucks in your pocket, you're in big trouble. You see, every one of our sins deserves the wrath of God. And someone has to pay for it. Here Saul shows his ignorance, thinking he can do it himself. You know what? God does not allow that. This seemingly innocent act by Saul reveals what is a deep truth in his heart. He doesn't think he needs God. Even while doing religious things. And this church leads God to rejecting Saul. Samuel says in verse 13, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Do you see how costly disobedience is? Do you see then the foolishness of our self-belonging? By thinking and acting as if you belong to yourself, you may feel like you fit into this world, but you might end up rejected by God. You might think right now that I'm only talking about those who are outside the church. Maybe those that wouldn't call themselves believers. But the reality is that this is a warning for those in the church as well. Because Saul's sin was disguised as religiosity. And this church is a serious warning. Our God is a judge. A righteous one. And we will one day stand before him. I'm saying this because we can at times nod our heads to the word of God. We can hear his commands and even say we believe them, but then live as if there is no God. Guess what? Our God is not crooked and he cannot be bribed. God is actually going to judge. God is going to judge us and when that judgment comes, someone will have to pay for our foolishness, even if it's disguised in religiosity again. Church, the repercussions of the foolishness of self-belonging are real. On that day, when you stand before God, will you slip him a 20 by pointing at your puny little kingdom and at your little works and think that you can save yourself? Or will you point at a better Savior, Jesus Christ, and say, I am his, I belong to him, he purchased me, he paid for my sins at the cross, I am his. 
What good is it to build your own little kingdom if one day, as you stand before God in judgment, it will lead you to being rejected by God? Let me ask you this morning, are you like Saul, doing your own little thing, appearing to do the godly thing? Are you using your faith as a tool to build your own little kingdom and live for yourself? Or are your eyes fixed in Jesus Christ, your King? As you, are you living as if you belong to Him? Let's keep reading the passage. I want you here in verses 15 to 23, I want you to see this. That the foolishness of self-belonging leaves us vulnerable and powerless. The second part of verse 15 says this. It says, And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. You see this? He went from 3,000 to 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Giva of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to Ophrah, to the land of Shul. Another company uh, turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now... There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the, plow, for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle... There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan had his uh, uh, sorry, but Saul and Jonathan his son had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Now this may look like a silly detail. The, the, the author is given as like a little snapshot of the economy of Israel at the time how they were doing business with the Philistines, and it's telling us that the Philistines were charging them a lot of money to sharpen their, their plowshares and their sickles and their mattocks. So what we see here, though, is not just a silly detail about the Israeli economy and the relationship with the Philistine. Here what we see is that the people of Israel were completely vulnerable. They had no weapons. The only two swords in the whole kingdom belonged to Saul and to Jonathan. The, soul, the, the army that Saul mustered, the 600 men, were powerless. They were helpless. So Saul finds himself in a hopeless situation. He is surrounded by a massive army. From his spot, from where he and Jonathan are, Saul can see the army of the Philistines go in three different directions to raid his kingdom, and he is powerless. He is weaponless, and he is vulnerable. The army he was able to muster is nothing in comparison to the Philistine army. On top of that, they have no weapons. But even worse, they can't even call on the one that can deliver them because he has rejected God. And God has rejected him. This, my dear friends, is the foolishness of self-belonging. When you think you belong to yourself, you will quickly find out that you are not enough. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how capable you think you are, on your own, you will always be vulnerable and helpless. 
This, however, is not how it has to be. Things are radically different when we recognize that we do not belong to ourselves, but belong to God. Alan Noble, the guy who I borrow the term self-belonging, says this, he says, An anthropology defined by our belonging to God is diametrically opposed to the contemporary belief that we are autonomous, free, optimistic individuals who find our greatest fulfillment in breaking free from all, from all external norms. Ourselves belong to God, and we are joyfully limited and restrained by the obligations, virtues, and love that naturally come from this belonging. This living before God is not easy. It requires sacrifice and humility, perpetual repentance and dependence upon Christ. You see, church, in Christ we are not powerless. We are not really ultimately vulnerable. In knowing that we belong to Christ, we find joy, we find peace, and we find actual, true, eternal freedom. You see, real freedom comes not from throwing God's commands to the side. Real freedom is not found in doing whatever I want. Real freedom is found in realizing that I do not belong to myself. But that as the title of the catechism says, that I am not my own, but belong to God with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Church, freedom comes from realizing that we belong to God. This demolishes the burden of having to make something of ourselves. This demolishes the pressure from the world that we have to do our own thing to really matter. This morning, let me ask you before I close, do you belong to God? Do you recognize that you belong to Him? By this, I'm not asking if you call yourself a Christian, because many do that. But do you truly belong to Him? Or are you building your own little kingdom? living for your own little self, is coming to church and doing the godly thing in your mind a tool to build your own life. Even those that call themselves Christians can at times just really live as if they belong to themselves. And this, my friends, is a sin. And as we saw from Saul's story, it is no small sin. A few moments ago, I mentioned God being a judge. And He is a judge. A righteous one too. But he's not only a judge. God wants you to know that you belong to him. Not because he's in a power trip trying to play politics. Not because he needs to gain more followers and more influence. God wants you to know that you belong to him because he is a good father. He's not only a good judge, but he's also a good father. And a father that wants us to know the inheritance that is found in being his child. Now, I don't know, you may be surprised, but I don't know Elon Musk personally. I don't know about you. I don't know him. I don't know his children. I cannot tell you his children's names. I probably can't even pronounce them. 
But I do know one thing about Elon Musk's children. And it is that as they grow up, they will never have to wonder if they'll make it in this life. They will never have to worry about the next meal. They will never have to worry about the things that they can and cannot afford. They will never look at the price of milk when they grow to the store. They, will prob- they probably don't even know what inflation is, right? They will be the heirs of wealth like no one else in this world. They will always be, and, and the thing about these kids is that they will always be better, enough, better off joining their dad's empire than competing against it. Church, our God is no Elon Musk. Our God is a benevolent God who sent his son to pay for your sins so that on the day that you stand before him, you may be declared innocent as his children. We may not have financial wealth in this world, but we have an inheritance that goes well beyond this world. The inheritance of eternal life. Let me ask you this morning. Will you receive the inheritance that is freely given to you in Christ? I'm going to call the worship team to come up. Will you join and submit to, your, to our benevolent God's kingdom? Or will you join Saul and foolishly compete against God's kingdom by building your own? Church, we are not our own, but belong to God in life and death. Would you now join us as we sing to our God in thanksgiving, as we sing and together declare that we are not our own, but belong to Christ. You may stand.